Hi everyone, quick disclaimer and content warning, as today we will be discussing the nature of Santa, hint hint, and thus it might not be recommended to children of an age participating in the spirit of Christmas, you know, to listen to this podcast today, if one might speak with some discretion. And also, although we will be demystifying and explaining the use of Amanita muscaria, I'm not advocating for your use of it, not telling you to use it. I don't want any responsibility for that. So (laughs) thank you. Now it's time for the show. The salt-stained school bus barrels down the Northwoods backroads of my small Wisconsin town, crushing the powdery cornstarch snow further into the freshly snow-plowed road. The year is 2002, and Keith Urban's Better Life is playing on the radio for the second or third time on my hour-long commute to the K-12 school on the edge of town. I've unzipped my coat with a determined indignation mostly to acclimate to the bus driver's sauna-like thermostat preferences. My spirit is feeling mercurial as the oblong one-floor brick building comes into view before we come to a rolling stop. (sighs) Time to get off. I try to squelch the butterflies in my stomach as my pace quickens into the building, head sunken back into the hood of my down jacket as little icy razor shards of snow whip past all of us kids. Overnight... I have become someone different. No, or maybe, maybe I'm the same, but the world has transformed into something nearly unrecognizable. And this realization isn't something my loud mouth can hold in much longer. Like a fire-breathing dragon? Girl, I've got news. I'm about to destroy the hopes and dreams of my best friend and eventually everyone in my third grade class. I meet Nicole at her cubby and speak to her in hushed tones, and her blue-green eyes widen with disbelief like I imagined they would. No, no, she says, and I respond with a level of certainty that convinces her on the spot. It's true, I said. It was my mother who faced the brunt of parents calling her in the following evenings to give her an earful, each dishing out their own pissed-off rendition of frustration, like an auditory advent calendar of shame she didn't ask for. Sorry, Mom. And a partridge in a pear tree. Wamp. Yes, it was I who happened upon the gifts marked from Santa who, come to think of it, had the same exact handwriting as my mother's. And, you know, I followed these little cookie crumbs to the other clues, which turned my winter snow globe of a world completely upside down. Well, then no wonder I never got that TV for my room every year I asked Santa for it. Or that scooter that I imagined getting from Santa... It was not the same one I actually got. Like, it wasn't even a two-wheeled scooter, but like some six-wheeled geriatric contraption I I could have never conceptualized for myself. That was a very cuckoo Santa gift. Or on a sadder and more real raw note here, why did all the little misbehaved assholes in my class get super expensive presents while the poor kids were getting dollar store slime and sticky slap hands? Like, girl, it was not adding up. Well, and I guess you could say all the plastic toys these rich kids were getting were actually lump of coal derived since all plastic comes from fossil fuels. But still, coming from some level of poverty myself, the the naughty and nice list, it just it just didn't add up. You know what I'm saying? 
At the same time, I suppose it was an appropriate age. I was eight or nine years old and mark my words, the only kids making it to their teens while still believing in Santa have to be the ones that are homeschooled or something. (laughs) But still, even that day that I spilled the eggnog to the entire third grade, I had a glimmering of dissonance in the form of a memory that I still hold on to to this day. And it is this. It's Christmas four years earlier and my gingerbread doe-eyed self is determined to be awake when Santa comes. So I lay in my bed in my room, the same room I swore I once saw the tooth fairy in the middle of the night, She was green. And the same room that I also told my six, yes six, imaginary friends to get lost and jump out the window because I was a big kid now. (laughs) That was sometime later. And it was this night I slept with one ear open. And sure enough, I woke in the middle of the night to the sound of footsteps on the roof and the sound of sleigh bells jingling. And at that moment, I knew somehow, in some form, Santa Claus was there and he was real. And with this auditory confirmation, I passed out. (laughs) And then then of course I was up bright and early the next day at like 5am to go and open my presents. About two decades have passed, although if you were on a Northwood school bus today, you never know it. Legend says Keith Urban is still playing to this day. (laughs) And at this point, I'm halfway across the globe in the metaphorical, one might say, ironically, the metaphorical mecca of Yuletide gay many layers of irony there, Um, Scandinavia. And save for the fleeting, frenzied summer months where Norwegians thaw out a little bit, the Christmas season is a time of magic for even the most reserved members of society. The lights around town are strung up everywhere. Children in the kindergarten spend the month of December in a constant celebration of the Yulanisa, which is the word for Santa Claus, and the grocery stores transform into a labyrinth of pinachet, glug, and Christmas cookies galore. And I have to say, there's something quite special about Yule in Norway, as it lacks some of the overstimulating capitalistic notes of the states, like first and foremost, which is extremely refreshing. Instead, there is a more dominating aura of solstice energy, of gentle-looking older Norwegian men selling Christmas trees along the streets with the backdrop of snow-dusted mountains and boreal pastel sunsets. You know, there's really no need to try hard to convince people to be in the spirit of Yule here because it's an energy with a life all its own, so overt, and I might say contagious, people can't help but pick up on it. Christmas here, it's like a pathology, but a good one. Furthermore, I'd say Yule is the salve for the Nordic people's seasonal depression, maybe? It's the socially acceptable time to make a little more eye contact, to give the gift of a smile to passers-by, and to be more okay with letting in a little more light into the heart that is enduring the darkest time of the year. And for that, I'm really grateful, as everyone needs a little belief to overcome this seasonal effect of depression and, and maybe their fear of the world's end, which we'll have to save for another day. Greenlanders like Finn, the disappearing ice is a weather vane. Proof global warming is happening right here, right now. When you live here, you don't really have to be a scientist to notice 
the, the changes that we've seen. The world is magic, not a little bit, 100%. Every atom from one end of this cosmos to the other is magic, magic, magic. From coast to coast, people are fleeing flames, wind and water. They're very dangerous conditions, and um, in 22 years of doing this, I've never seen fire conditions like this. Mycophobia, the irrational fear of the unknown when it comes to fungi. Up the coast, the Pacific Northwest saw a record-breaking heat wave earlier in the summer. This is unfortunately the, our new normal. This is the first time it was 116 degrees. We have now entered into 6X, the sixth major extinction on this planet. Fate has chosen you to hear about this. I, I actually think the psychedelic experience is significant because it, it addresses the two biggest problems we face as a civilization, which I would list as tribalism and the environmental crisis. The mycelium is sentient. It knows that you are there. When you walk across landscapes, it leaps up in the aftermath of your footsteps trying to grab debris. It's what everyone thinks is impossible. That's actually what it is. You've had a, a taste of another way to be, of a more open, less defended way to be, and you have that memory, and you can reconnect to it. it it's, uh, it's boundary dissolving is what it is, and we have a real aversion to that. When the boundary that's dissolved is serious, we have a real aversion to it. I think engaging mycelium can help save the world. Ho, ho, welcome to the Future Mycelium podcast and season's greetings to one and all. I'm recording this on the winter solstice during the full moon in Gemini. Any Gemini babies out there? Y'all are crazy. I'm a sun and moon Libra, Leo rising, by the way. Incredibly important information for those of you that keep shrines of strangers' birth charts. Y'all know who you are. And today we're going back, way, way back, to unearth what has been buried for hundreds of years, thousands of years even the Christmas skeleton woman. And she's got a little secret, or maybe a huge secret. And it's got everything to do with Amanita muscaria, or the fly agaric mushroom. I have to first admit that I had some certain expectations around my Amanita research. You know, I guess I just expected it to be easier, but I've come to find, as Valentina Pavlovna Wasson once put it, the history and cross-cultural analysis of Amanita muscaria or fly agaric is one of the hugest ethnomycological conundrums of our time. It's like sand falling through your fingers or something. It sort of seems like this Amanita is playing a game on those of us looking to understand her more. Like the closer we get, the more elusive and fractaled her evidence becomes. And then the only way to understand her most clearly comes through myth and intuitive conjecture. The biggest obstacle you have to overcome to understand her better is to accept her wisdom, knowledge, and presence is best portrayed by re-mythologizing her and talking about her in this oral tradition. Of course, we can give more science to her, which she definitely deserves, but half of the magic of it is just talking about it and putting your own creative flair on it as well. That's what most people actually do, and that's what generates more conversation about Amanita muscaria, which I also think is kind of cool. And I was thinking that if there's one quote that the Amanita muscaria emulates best, it's this. Do not question 
question the mystery, participate in it. The Amanita Muscaria shows us through her mere presence on the forest floor that we are all capable of what our ancient ancestors were of, of multidimensional medicinal storytelling, of surprise and allure, of, of keeping on our toes and keeping that which is sacred close to our chests, sharing only with those who seek it out in earnest, which might be the most magical thing of all. And if you're unsure of Amanita Muscaria's presence, look no further than the Mario Bros mushroom or basically any red toadstool with white dots from any sort of run-of-the-mill children's book. Amanita Muscaria is hands down the most iconic, okay, she's the most iconographic mushroom in existence, growing beneath pine trees, spruce specifically. It was the mushroom we talked about a good deal in episode two, Mushroom, Shamans, Toadstools, and Little Children, which I would recommend listening to. And just side note, although this podcast, it's not exactly episodic in nature, each episode builds upon the last, so I would recommend listening from episode one, starting to finish, especially if you don't consider yourself at least like moderately well-versed in the esoteric practice that we would consider the gathering of mushroom knowledge is. But yes, Amanita, this is the mushroom who has gained, hands down, one of the worst and most undue raps, okay? She's like the tinder fuel for the world's most prolific spread of mycophobia. And it's the mushroom that parents point out to their kids and say, no, don't touch that. It's poisonous. <laughs> Despite different types of Amanita like the death cap and the angel destroyer mushroom being responsible for 95% of mushroom-related deaths in the world, Amanita muscaria is not one of them. And I'd wager if you took the death angel mushroom, that's like very white looking, kind of pure and angelic and unassuming looking, and put her next to Amanita muscaria, which is red with these white dots and it's kind of spooky looking, you know, I'd wager that you would guess that Amanita muscaria is the one that will do you in. And you would be dead wrong. Get it? Dead jokes? There's a saying in mushroom foraging that goes, if it's red, you're dead. Which, yes, some red cap mushrooms are toxic, but Amanita muscaria won't kill you, but it will inebriate you. And to be fair, most people over the course of history who have died from eating the truly poisonous varieties of Amanita, they almost never lived to tell the tale, <laughs> right? And from what I have read, these mushrooms, the white ones, the ones that are poisonous, they're not assaulting in their flavor. They're like completely unassuming in taste and they don't kill immediately either. They kind of fly under the radar until it's too late. We should be calling them fly under the radar agaric. <laughs> I'm like, fly agaric. Okay, I'm done with my jokes. All right, continuing onwards. The death cat mushroom or the angel destroyer mushroom were most likely the mushrooms that killed or attempted to kill Emperor Claudius before Nero took the throne. As Emperor Claudius was a huge fan of mushroom dishes and his favorite mushroom was of the Amanita variety, which is Amanita caesarea or Caesar's mushroom. And just Roman emperors in general were known for indulging in this mushroom because I guess it tastes really good. And actually, it might not have been these mushrooms that did him in as he did throw up after being served the mushrooms, which I believe were a mix of Amanitas, both edible and not. I think it was Amanita Caesarea. This is my own hunch. Okay. I think it was Amanita Caesarea, the one that he wanted to eat. It was Amanita phylloides or one of these death cat mushrooms that you could eat and not even know that you ate something that was poisonous because they don't really taste bad. They might even taste good. And then there was also some Amanita muscaria, which can be cooked in small amounts in dishes as well and can make the dish more savory or something as well. I think it was a mix of these three. And this is where whoever was trying to kill him messed up, okay? They should not have put the Amanita muscaria in there, okay? And I'll get to the reasons why. But these deadly Amanitas, the ones that were put in his dish, like the Death Cap and Angel Destroyer Amanitas, they take at least 12 hours to sink in, okay? And their effects aren't felt before. And if one is to ingest them, but then throw them up, then the amatoxins, 
glands, or more specifically the lethal muscarine that is responsible for their toxicity, won't make their way to the delicate digestive tract and then to the liver. It's said that he was poisoned right after he threw up, uh, likely by the physician in attendance after he vomited up these amanitas, right? And it was with a type of gourd extract that is more immediately lethal, and it's called colocynth otherwise known as the desert gourd or the vine of Sodom. However, if he had been fed Amanita muscaria, then that would explain why he vomited. And I think, in my humble opinion, it would have been better to omit the Amanita muscaria entirely because the ebotenic acid that it holds in high doses can cause nausea and vomiting. I guess they should have consulted me beforehand. Count Achilles de Vecchi, the Italian ambassador for the U.S. in 1897 in Washington, likely died in a similar manner, although Amanita muscaria has been the one to blame. It was more likely he was given a poisonous variety of Amanita, and I'm not sure if it was on purpose or if on accident, and the Amanita muscaria was just scapegoated given its alarming color and devilish presence. Now I'll admit that before researching this episode, I thought most of my mycophobia was unpacked, but boy was I wrong. It made me realize that the majority of people really lack a good understanding of Amanita muscaria, and it wasn't until recently scientists started working with it to understand its properties more scientifically, and I know that it's being used in research for anxiety and depression and just like those kind of -of run-of-the-mill mushroom clinical trials that they're doing with psilocybin. They're also starting to do with Amanita muscaria now, but this is like a recent thing. And don't get me wrong, Amanita muscaria is very much a hit-or-miss kind of deal when it comes to its potency. This means the amounts of ebotenic acid and muscimol, the two complementary compounds that contribute to the psychoactive highs and lows of this mushroom, they're extremely varied in their amounts from mushroom cap to mushroom cap. So this means that people have had such varying experiences with the Amanita muscaria because they lack an understanding of how it occurs in nature and then how to prepare it, how to store it, honestly, how to properly respect it and then how to use it in their right set and setting. You can see there are a lot of ways that Amanita muscaria can be mishandled why it can feel either overwhelmingly maddening to take or underwhelmingly elusive. Now, as someone coming from a family of... Okay, I guess you'd have to ask each member of my maternal extended family what their beliefs are exactly in the present day, but growing up, you could say us kids were having conversations about religion and Jesus with parents and extended family who held a proud contempt and disinterest in religion. Christmas for us was like strictly cultural, save for my dad's Catholic parents, which even with my experiences with Catholicism were removed, save for like the occasional 5 a.m. mass my brother and I attended with them. And that was in exchange for breakfast at a restaurant afterwards. (laughs) I grew up with very little understanding of religious history and culture, all of it. I was very much outside of it, even though everyone in my neighborhood and everyone in my community was like Christian or Catholic and was getting confirmed. My brother and I were always like the outsiders looking in like, who's that? (laughs) What is that? So to me, Santa really was this magical jolly man in the North Pole who just knew everything about every kid and that was it. Admittedly, I always felt a little bored around the Christian motifs my paternal great aunts and uncles tried to explain to us on Christmas Eve. And, you know, my aim is not to offend any Christian listeners on this podcast when I say my brother and I even rearranged my grandma's nativity scene into something more entertaining one year. 
And for that, I'm sorry, Grandma. But, you know, in a way, you have to envy those kids that I went to school with who did have Christianity as something to kind of fall back on or to maybe evolve into because it also required faith or requires faith, I guess. And Christianity has a lot of cultural traditions that you'll take with you for the rest of your life. And in this way, to stop believing in Santa for them was to believe in Christ instead and to venerate him. Once I no longer believed in Santa, that was kind of it for me. And I felt a little bit maybe dejected, but also like relieved that I wasn't being lied to anymore. But then in my teens, a love and compulsion to learn about Scandinavia consumed me. I even had one of my majors at university as Scandinavian studies. Yes, that is a study. (laughs) And I studied Swedish. Yes, that is a language you can learn at a U.S. university. And I even partook on a Swedish television show to discover my ancestry there in my early 20s. There are many things that mystify and intrigue me about this place, you know, living in Norway now. And perhaps I think the easiest and most enjoyable energy to tap into is the one that reaches much further back beyond Christianity to the origin of Santa himself. But first, we have to hop on over to the furthest reaches of Siberia. There are several tribes in Siberia that have either well-documented their ancestors' use of Amanita muscaria for shamanistic purposes and or still uphold their use ritualistically in the present day. And it was actually a Swedish explorer who was of German origin from that confuses me, but okay, from the 18th century who took extensive adventures to these indigenous peoples. And his name was Philip Johann von Stallenberg. More specifically, he was a military officer and a geographer, and it was he who started mapping the use of Amanita muscaria in tribes across the eastern and western far reaches of Siberia, like the Koryak and the Kamchatka tribesmen, as well as the Samoyeds, the Yenisei, Ostiaks and the Chukchis, amongst others. And despite their very differences from tribe to tribe, they've been grouped together and named the Hyperborean people or the Paleo-Siberian people for convenience. And it was among the Paleo-Siberian people that the use of Amanita muscaria is as well documented as it is today. Although its documentation stems from oral storytelling and a bit of hearsay, that and our own deductive reasoning is the bedrock of our shared understanding in the present day, which admittedly is a little shaky, but you know, it's all we have. Amanita muscaria was and is used primarily by shamans alone or with shamans facilitating and overseeing while others take them. Their use is ritualistic. And in general, the shaman plays in their community is one of consultant and way shower. Like Maria Sabina in episode two, Mushroom Shamans, Toadstools, and Little Children, we discuss the different levels of healers with Maria being one of the highest rank, if we were to call it that, the medicine woman. Her means were strictly that of healing people and bringing ease, a sort of energetic gift that could alter the course of a person's life forever. Siberian shamans have played a similar role, just as do shamans in general across the world. They have the same type of intention for healing and leaving people better off than they were before they consulted them. In Siberia, it was the shamans who were to be consulted about the matters of the Amanita. It is said it was the shamans here who dressed in red and white cloaks with black boots, who went to the forest and collected the ornamental-looking Amanitas from the bottom of nature's Christmas trees and lugged them over their shoulders in a sack. It was their reindeer who were addicted to Amanita muscaria, who looked like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer while scourging for red-capped Amanitas along the forest floor. It was the shamans who went to the snow-covered yurts of their people and dropped in through their chimneys to hang the mushrooms to dry along the hearth, kind of like stockings along a fireplace. Some of the recorded effects of Amanita are those of inebriation, yes, but also of distortion of time and space, where things that are small might appear huge and insurmountable, and things that are large might look like the size of a mouse. Another symptom is that of flying. 
And these distortions might account for the idea of flying reindeer and the absurdly large sack of gifts that Santa has on his sleigh. The fact that he has enough time to go to every child's home in the matter of one night that he seems to be able to work miracles. When we think of the word shaman, it comes from the word saman, which means the one who knows. And it is the shaman who takes the Amanita muscaria, or maybe psilocybin, they take the psychedelic. And another word for psychedelics is entheogen. Entheogen, or entheogen, <laughs> emphasis on the wrong syllable, I'm not sure. The word entheogen can be broken down into three subparts. En, which is inward, theo, which is God, and gen, which is the generation of. So it's the generation of the inward God. So it is the one who knows who is generating an inward God. Another interesting thing, you know, Santa says, ho, 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 as if he's so jolly and merry. And it is the Amanita muscaria that can create a sense of euphoria and bliss and sort of giggling as can many tryptamine psychedelics as well. When we think about people taking these pine trees into their homes and then putting white and red presents underneath the tree. Those white and red presents look like the amanita that are growing beneath the pine tree. So it's sort of like the outward world is reflected in the living room. And although there's not much written evidence or art evidence as was spoken about of the use of Amanita muscaria across all Northern European countries. There's something to be said for the sheer fact that Amanita muscaria has existed everywhere for a very long time. And when one is in the forest and foraging, oftentimes one needs food. And it, it seems ridiculous to say that people didn't eat these mushrooms. Maybe they didn't eat them and cook them properly, and maybe they got stomach aches and threw up at some point. But the world of ingesting mushrooms and figuring out what's toxic, what's not, what will make you trip balls, what won't, has been a matter of trial and error across the entire globe. I think there's a misconception as well when we consider the use of mushrooms or the ingesting of mushrooms and that, oh, well, these people in this area had to try the mushroom first, and then they had to take that tradition and bring it someplace else. That's not necessarily the case because mushrooms have always been everywhere. And so cultures can be independently developing their own relationship, however esoteric and hidden with a variety of mushrooms or even plant substances. Somewhere along the lines of the development of the imagination beyond um, an ancient uh, ritual with psychedelics, there came a time maybe before or maybe into the dominion of Abrahamic religion or more structured religions that followed a sense of logic and trepidation towards, you know, unbridled spirituality and that these things were dangerous. And we've seen many manifestations of punishment for people who are too mystical, too out there, too, too into their inner worlds, right? And it's like people kind of collectively over, over the world have known this is a knowledge that works best or has worked best or maybe has been forced to work most effectively behind the scenes, kind of under the radar. And that's not something I really hear people discussing, but it's something that we should be considering when thinking about how Amanita muscaria might have played a role, even if it wasn't direct and even if there's no direct proof of it. People were eating mushrooms when they were hungry, <laughs> and some of them ate the death camp mushroom and some of them ate the Amanita muscaria mushroom. And also thousands of years ago or even hundreds of years ago, were people writing about it? Not necessarily. So just something to consider when thinking about you know our needs for proof versus using a little bit of logic and, you know, faith with it. As we've said, the conversation around Amanita muscaria is one of 
mythologizing it in the process. And maybe that will become less so as we have more scientific research and we really marry logic and the heart together, which I'm a huge proponent of. But something I also heard the Amanita Dreamer say was that she is like a chemist and she understands the science. But what she sees is that the science is always pointing to what the myth is already saying, what the messages are already being told when one takes Amanita muscaria is that what is being told when one takes it is where the science should go with it. So it's not that the science needs to prove Amanita muscaria wrong. It's that we just could use science as a way to reflect what this intelligence from Amanita muscaria is already saying, which I find kind of humbling and pretty cool. Like These are exaggerated examples of what the Siberian shaman represented to ancient peoples all anthropomorphized into this jolly male figurine. Oh, and the elves. One can simply not forget the elves. Sometimes people taking Amanita muscaria report seeing hallucinations, and in some cases, the mushroom reveals itself to the user. These mushroom spirits are called wapak by some Siberians. And you know, in a video, I heard someone claim Amanita muscaria has trace amounts of DMT, but I personally can't find proper evidence of my own to confirm this. The primary chemical compounds that contribute to an Amanita muscaria trip are ebotenic acid and muscimol. But nonetheless, these compounds together seem to often manifest a level of, I would say like shenanigans and pure euphoria that is akin to DMT, which is why I feel compelled to take a quick tangent to DMT to explain or more like retell something that Terrence McKenna once described about his DMT trips as a psychonaut. He took a lot of DMT. And if you don't know much about DMT, it is a tryptamine that is akin to the likes of psilocybin and occurs in small amounts across most living creatures. It is, one would say, endogenous to the human body. And although people claim DMT is produced in the pineal gland, this isn't something scientists are actually sure about, but we do know that DMT is in its highest amounts in the cerebrospinal fluid during REM when you're sleeping. And we all know that sleeping is just practice for death. (laughs) DMT has been coined the spirit molecule and is believed to be released in large amounts during death. And those who smoke DMT are forced into conscious REM for 15 minutes. And the things that they see are varied. And this is reminding me of our conversation about the toad venom from Buffal Varus. Do you remember that in episode two? That's like the most potent form of DMT out there, man. But anyways, one thing is certain, those who take DMT are sent to a place that is otherwise hidden in plain sight. They're they're no longer here on earth, okay? Bye-bye someplace else. These DMT dreamscapes of sorts, they have all different kinds of creatures and all different kinds of places. But one of these creatures that many people report seeing are elves. And McKenna described that there was a specific place he always went to in his spatial DMT scape. And it was a place he described held these self-transforming elf machines that they were best described as elves from an energetic standpoint, but they looked more like these opalescent balls of light. And the one thing that they wanted Terrence McKenna to know or to focus on while he was in this fleeting place was that the point of him being there, the point of him taking DMT was not to be dazzled by the unbelievable display he was seeing, but to make himself useful and to create things. Now, these little crystalline DMT elf balls. Are you still with me on this? Try to stick with me here, okay? These little crystalline DMT elf balls were basically, basically taking one form of energy and converting it into something else, like taking light or sound and transforming it into something that looked material, like a synesthetic conversion of one energetic material into something else, sort of like a spiritual manifestation of what humans do on earth 
that we're all here to use our hands to make things, that we were created to be creators, and we can access the inner divine by making things. And that is how we drive our own light forward. So this idea of elves, be them of the Amanita-derived variety or of a DMT one, both seem to represent the aids and proliferation of the divine creation, and that the divine creation is helped by what it has manifested to help create itself and to become more whole in and of itself. You know, you need elves to help you. <laughs> in a way, elves make the most sense. They represent the collaboration and symbiosis and synergy of things, and that we all work well when we work together, and that we have a little fun and play some jokes along the way. I mean, isn't that what we're all doing? <laughs> Being sneaky little creators? And, and doesn't it feel fun and euphoric to create something we're excited about? That's like its own form of currency its own elfish currency. <laughs> but I guess my thoughts and ideas and memes, if you will, around this sort of thing add to the lore that everyone's already cooking up about this stuff. And it seems people are pretty receptive to this game of creating and imagining the spirit of Christmas and what it could represent anyway. Back to the shamans. Their reindeer love the Amanitas. They love the smell of human pee if the Amanita has been ingested. And did you know people will like re-up their trips by drinking human pee or drinking reindeer urine? And that can also help with converting ebotanic acid into muscimol, <laughs> which can reduce the nausea and vomiting and stuff too. In episode two, we discussed the nature of shamanistic practices, that there are many ways to alter consciousness while sober, and that those shamans who can do so sober were very strong shamans. So it's not necessarily true that Amanita muscaria was used all the time by the shamans or regular people, but when it was used, it was, it was to bring the shaman to the spirit world or to fly, which brings a whole other meaning to the colloquial word for Amanita muscaria or the fly agaric. But what is but what is to be said about Scandinavia and the indigenous Sami people? Could it be that Scandinavia has a rich yet well-hidden history with this mushroom? From what I can deduce, this is what Swedes and Norwegians want to and choose to believe, even if there exists virtually no more solid evidence of it, save for a handful of more modern run-ins with the Amanita muscaria. But what we can say is that the Paleo-Siberian people, they spread across all of Northern Europe and are the direct ancestors of the indigenous people of the Americas after going over the Bering Strait as well. So this means the Sami are a people directly related to the Paleo-Siberian people. And the Sami live across Northern Norway, Sweden, Finland, and Western Russia in the present day, albeit in a more attritioned and colonized way. And the Amanita muscaria exists literally every Everywhere in these places, Amanita is growing out of my driveway here. It's everywhere, you know? In the present day, people across Russia and Northern Europe still decorate their Christmas trees with Amanita ornaments too. My hunch is that the Amanita quickly fell into the realm of sacred esoteric knowledge kept close to the chest and only briefly manifests in hearsay and old wives' tales here. Valentina Pavlovna Wasson documented such a wives' tale passed down from an old Swedish grandmother who added little clippings of the Amanita caps to the mushroom dish she prepared to point up the dish. Valentina stops and asks the reader to wonder how on earth could this Swedish grandmother before modern technology and the internet, mind you, Valentina was writing this in the mid 20th century, like Microsoft who? Apple what? Who she? How could this grandmother have any idea of such a specific cooking tip? I think it would have had to have been passed down from generations ago. There is a theory, although it's probably more technically a hypothesis, but it's called the Oddman-Schiebler theory, which is a Swedish theory, certainly attests to this idea 
and claimed that the term going berserk or going berserk from Viking times was from an altered state of consciousness when taking the Amanita, even if there is no written proof or explicit art as evidence. In 1918, a Swedish meteorologist, which tell me what meteorology has to do directly with mycology, unless you want to entertain the hypothesis that mushrooms actually came from outer space, but that's for another day. <laughs> but yes, the Swedish meteorologist named H. Hildenbrandsen read a paper to the Royal Scientific Society. Yes, they were a big deal about an instance of Swedish soldier of Swedish soldiers. Say that five times fast. Swedish shoulders. Swedish shoulders. <laughs> All these Swedish shoulders were taking Amanita, okay? Swedish soldiers were taking a slew of Amanita muscaria before a battle against the Norwegians on the Riksgränsen, which is the border of Norway and Sweden, to whip them up into a brave frenzy fit for battle kind of like going berserk. Those residing over the Royal Scientific Society Council found his argument for the ancient use of Amanita muscaria to be at least very agreeable in its rhetoric. And my hunch is that they all wanted to believe it anyway. So they just like took the paper as a sort of gospel that made the Swedes look brave and strong. And after this point, both Sweden and Norway culturally stopped questioning it, like broadly anyways, and took their preferred hunch to be fact. And you know, it is slightly surreal here to see some of the Scandinavian dudes that are like purebred Vikings through and through, like seven feet tall, three meters tall, like just ginormous behemoth people. <laughs> they're rare, but every once in a while you'll see these giant men walking around like they're in the wrong era or something. And I kind of want to give them an axe and some glug and, but maybe like an Amanita muscaria glug, like, or an Amanita muscaria tea. And I want to see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> my own present-day ethno-mycological research. Stay tuned. Uh, so Valentina also provides evidence that Alice in Wonderland, no duh, was inspired by papers that outlined the shamanic use of the Amanita muscaria by Siberian shamans. There were papers written about this, and these papers made their way to the eyes of Lewis Carroll, the creator of Alice in Wonderland. There were a couple of papers in particular that detailed the use and the symptoms of Amanita muscaria that were published in the fall prior to the beginning of Alice in Wonderland being written on October 4th. And Carroll started putting his pen to paper, or maybe his feather to paper, certainly not writing it on stone walls, <laughs> probably a feather. I'm going to say he was using a feather to write it down on November 13th. We could also take a moment to reflect on the colloquial name of Amanita muscaria, the fly killer, yet this name doesn't necessarily mean what it implies. A slurry of German researchers between the 13th and 15th centuries claimed that the Amanita could be put in milk to kill flies, although other people have tested this milk and mushroom combination with mixed and questionable results with its efficacy of fly killing. It's more likely that the name fly agaric comes from the linguistical Christian influence, where basically anything tied to the mystical, magical, and paganistic were clumped together and demonized, which we outlined in episode two. We've already discussed the nature of the toadstool, which is the iconic Amanita muscaria, and trace the general word for toad and mushroom to have similar demonic implications. But we need not forget that bugs and insects like flies were also signs of the devil and death. And back in the day, during the time of giving Amanita muscaria her colloquial name, the word for fly, it was just a generic term, like flies, gnats, bedbugs. They were sometimes all the same thing. Even me today, I if I see something flying around, it's a fly. <laughs> it's flying, therefore it is a fly. Is it actually a taxonomically, is it a fly? I don't know, but it's a fly. You know what I mean? And heck, even, even bats fly. And remember that the word for 
bat in French is bon, or not bon, but it's les bons volants, which is like the flying cripple or the flying toad. (laughs) Because remember we said that bon was the old word for toad in France, and le bon was also the name for like the crippled devil. But in English, bon, which is bot, takes a prefix on the word fly to mean a bot fly. And those are nasty little buggers, aren't they? And the word for bot isn't too far off from the word bug. And bug, it's also a general term for insects, kind of like a fly. So in a way, the words fly and bug are used both interchangeably or at least with the same level of generality, like, oh, look, it's a bug. It's a fly. It doesn't say anything specific about the species, but we agree that it, it it's a bug that is flying at least. I think most bugs fly, right? Or they can at least like flap their wings a little, kind of like chickens. We also use the word bug to imply when something is defected, like your computer is bugged or something like that, which is kind of like bon or bot, which we know was said as a way of saying crippled or lame, which also describes a kind of defect. You know, someone who is bugging out might be considered crazy or inebriated or tripping out. Sometimes people are tripping, their eyes are bugging, <laughs> their eyes are flying. Their eyes are fly a gherkin, you know what I'm saying? And someone who's in a bug house is at one of those treacherous, insane asylums that you only see in the present day in like horror movies. So we see that the fly agaric has a more hidden meaning than simply killing flies, which is something to consider. People tend to believe Santa is derived from St. Nicholas, a venerated saint, and the Russians love him for how he treated the poor and seemed to work miracles. And after the church split, the Orthodox Greeks claim Santa was derived from St. Basil, another saint also known for his generosity. And both St. Nicholas and St. Basil were from Turkey, from similar time periods. Be that as it may, I think both St. Nicholas and St. Basil represent the kindness and giving nature we all admire during the holiday season, but all of the tropes surrounding the lore of Santa precede both of those saints. And another curious thing, there could be a little more research on this I didn't find, but it seems that no one actually agrees on when Jesus's birthday actually was. People do be wondering, why would shepherds be out herding sheep in the middle of winter? And some speculate spring during the Easter time was a more likely time for him to have been born. But the church was smart. They said, hey, everyone's already celebrating the solstice. The majority of people already consider this a very spiritual time of year. So let's tell everyone Jesus was born on December 25th. Yeah, it just works. And indeed it has. And this isn't to offend Christians who find their faith increases during this time of year because of Jesus's birth. Like you do you. And I'm so happy if you feel your inner divinity through Christianity at this time of year. We just can't be fooled into thinking that Christmas tradition started at the birth of Christ or at the dawn of Christian saints. You know, there's a rich history that precedes this time by thousands of years. I'd also like to mention that I didn't get time to discuss the preparation of Amanita Muscaria as I think it's outside of my expertise anyways, but I do know who you can support, and that is Amanita Dreamer, who you can find on YouTube, her website, and her Patreon, Amanita Dreamer. She knows the science of Amanita Muscaria, has ways of preparing it, explains how it functions in the body, and so much more. She's literally an Amanita way shower. Amanita Muscaria way shower. And I only happened upon her recently. So if this episode has whet your appetite for more Amanita Muscaria content, please go and support her. She has put so much effort into explaining and demystifying Amanita Muscaria. This is about all I have to say about the history of Christmas and where Amanita Muscaria fits into all of it. But remember what I said at the beginning about the skeleton woman. What of the skeleton woman? Why should we discuss Christmas in reference to her? 
Who even is she? It's because the skeleton woman, as Clarissa Estes points out in her Jungian psychology and mythological book of medicinal stories, Women Who Run With the Wolves, she speaks of reclaiming the divine feminine. And the skeleton woman's story represents this reclamation and represents the life-death-life cycle of nature of our entire existence. The skeleton woman in the story was a woman thrown away into the sea by her father for doing something bad. And it was only care and attention from the divine masculine understanding her in the form of a fisherman and her future lover, it was love, that brought her back to life and made her anew. That she was able to grow her flesh and to quench her thirst and to be made manifest again. And I think that discussing Amanita and removing her stigmas and her seemingly devious nature is of great service to us all. Because it seems cross-culturally, we have killed off Amanita Muscaria through attrition. We have thrown her into the metaphorical sea to try and forget her. So it really has to be us who've been the fly killers. We have killed off the wisdom of a mushroom that actually knows how to way show us to our highest inner divine nature, if only we will listen. Centuries ago in ancient cultures, Amanita was alive and well. And then she was killed off and made a pariah of fear. And it is only those of us today that choose to dig into the earth and honor her and prepare her properly that she can be rehomed amongst us in her rightful place. Amanita Muscaria, in a way, represents all the manifestations of divine feminine, be that within nature, the animals, or humans, and also how we've tried to sabotage and destroy ourselves. It should then be through a repatriation of sorts that Amanita Muscaria finds her footing once again and is welcomed home with open arms. After all, it's the least we can do for her, as she's an icon who's contributed to our generosity and joy during this special seasonal winter solstice time. It's time to stop treating her like the Scarlet's Letter or the Scarlet's Mushroom. As a full-grown adult, I'm grateful for mushrooms for many reasons, obviously, but I think reinstilling my belief in the beauty, awe, and wonder of our existence is at the top of the list for me. I find telling this story about Amanita to be very cathartic and healing, as if I too have salved my wounds from losing my own inner magic, both through losing my faith in Santa, sure, but that is dwarfed in comparison to any later manifestations of dominator culture that tried to make me lose my path and to take away my voice and make me feel small and make me think I was the problem. And in a way, I'm the skeleton woman. You're the skeleton woman. Even if you're not a woman, you're the skeleton woman if you're reclaiming your power and taking charge of your own life. And I hope this podcast has served, uh, served you in a similar way. I don't want a lot for Christmas. There is just one thing I need. I don't care about the presents underneath the Christmas tree. I just want you for my own, more than you could ever know. Make my wish come true. All I want for Christmas is a mushroom mushroom baby i think we're all going to need mariah carey to come and make a mycological uh parody or redo of that song and i will be taking 20 percent royalties on that thank you very much <laughs> Before we sign off from the Future Mycelium podcast on this lovely winter solstice, we cannot forget to thank our sources. We have a few here. 
some articles, some videos, and a book that I've referenced before, that one being Mushrooms, Russia, and History, Volume 1 by Valentina Pavlovna Wasson and R. Gordon Wasson. There were some videos that I watched just to refresh my memory around the general lore of Santa Claus being a mushroom. There's a clip from the Joe Rogan podcast titled Santa Claus Was a Mushroom, and it's just a segment of this entire, however long are his podcast episodes, three, four hours where Joe Rogan goes on a tangent about Santa Claus being a mushroom and uses information about the Dead Sea Scrolls and really um, goes swinging his pendulum onto the far ends of the fringes of this conversation. I found it entertaining, but I didn't include it super directly into the podcast. Nonetheless, you can go and find that if you want to listen to it. Joe Rogan doesn't know how to do a podcast without talking about psychedelics to save his life. And I'm maybe, honestly, I'm not judging. Maybe I'm the same. Uh, there were two videos from YouTube from, from a YouTuber who goes by Stone Age Man. One is titled, Why We Got It Wrong, Fly Agaric 101, The Magical Mushroom, in parentheses, Amanita Muscaria. And a second one, The Misunderstood Magical Mushroom, Amanita Muscaria, in parentheses, Fly Agaric. And it was here that he introduced Amanita Dreamer, who I was saying you should be supporting and checking out her videos on YouTube. And then her website is amanitadreamer.net. And then she has a Patreon called Amanita Dreamer as well. You can check out the link tree in her Instagram bio, Amanita Dreamer, that has all of her resources, how to pay her for all the work that she's doing. <laughs> she deserves to be paid handsomely for what she's doing, in my opinion. And I found that both her and the Stone Age Man videos were quite new. The Stone Age Man videos were only a month old, so I found the, these uh, resources were perfectly timed, just maybe a sign of the times. There was a video called Santa is a Psychedelic Mushroom from The Atlantic, and that was a six-minute video with an interview from an ethnomycologist and researcher. And then there was the Terrence McKenna conversation, the tangent we went on about DMT. I've included that as a resource as well. And that one is titled Terrence McKenna, How to Ask the Universe for What You Want. And the YouTube channel is called Awakening Journey. And that one includes, I mean, whenever you're listening to Terrence McKenna lectures, it's hard to search them on YouTube for very specific content or very specific topics. And maybe that's on purpose because Terrence McKenna isn't meant to just be cut up and compartmentalized into little snippets from subject matter to subject matter because he ties them all together like a tapestry from one end of the cosmos to the next. But I happened to find that this was an, uh, an episode or a lecture where he discussed his use of DMT in depth. And that's why I included it to make comparisons about the elves in this episode. There was a PDF called The Poisoning of Count Achilles de Vecchi and the Origins of American Amateur Mycology by David W. Rose, and it's from namico.org slash doc slash countachilles.pdf. Any other information was from sources that I no longer have in my psyche consciously. <laughs> and you could just assume that any sources from a previous episode likely contributed to the next episode. That's all today. Please enjoy your winter solstice and the waning of our full moon in Gemini. This was a three-day full moon. Pretty dope. And I will see you all in the next one. Bye.